Hello, hello, hello. My name is Andrew, and I would like to welcome you to this week's episode of The Bible Less Traveled. This is a podcast where we're on a journey as fellow travelers into the text of the Bible, a journey that is a little different than the norm. We'll be doing pretty normal things like reading texts from the Bible, analyzing them, interpreting them, and trying to apply them today. But we'll be doing so from a decidedly unfundamentalist perspective. This week, we continue our arc of episodes tackling different myths about the Bible. The myth for this week might seem rather obvious to some of you, but it leads us into some interesting waters, especially since I'm pretty sure most of us know at least one person who would say this. If you're going to read the Bible, you have to read the King James Version. <sighs> well, now, this myth represents a lot of different things, but the aspect I want to focus on, uh, well, the aspects I want to f focus on are the following assumptions. The first assumption underlying this myth is that the King James Version is the authorized version for English readers. The second is that there is such a thing as a perfect or ultimately preferred English translation. And the third is that you only need to read one translation to understand a text well. Quick breakdown of these assumptions and their fallacies. Um, well, really just an introductory breakdown before the bigger one. Uh, I would counter the first assumption uh, that the King James Version is the authorized version with a question. Authorized by whom? You see, at the heart of the assumption is that it's somehow authorized by God, but it is infinitely more complicated than that, especially since the descriptor authorized version has its own history that's being ignored in its general application today. I'll go more into depth on this in a minute. The second and third assumptions I will address later in this episode, but for now, let me just offer this response. <laughs> no. Um, these assumptions have one very large flaw. They overlook the fact that translations are, at their very heart, interpretations. But more on that later. For now, let's jump into a quick history of translating biblical texts. Because it's all connected, I promise. 
And you'll have to forgive me as, once again, you get a very condensed version of a very long stretch of history. One of the oldest translation endeavors that we're aware of is called the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible from somewhere in the 3rd to 2nd centuries BCE. As the legend told by Aristeus has it, the Greek ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy II, requested 70, or 72 depending on the version that you hear, uh, Jewish scholars to translate their scriptures into Greek so that all could learn from them without the barrier of language, uh, and so they these translations might be kept in the great library of Alexandria. Each scribe was summoned individually and isolated from each other as they were given their mandate. In their isolation, the 70 or 72 scribes produced identical translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, hence the name of the translation, Septuagint, meaning 70. This was thought to be a miracle of God and evidence that it was an authorized translation. Oh, pretty interesting, right? Well, it gets better. The Septuagint was the translation of the Hebrew scriptures used by most of the early church because most of the early church spoke what language, friends? Greek! That's right, not Hebrew, Greek. And since the New Testament, well, you know, didn't exist yet, um, and Paul was just starting his letter-writing endeavors and whatnot, it was the Hebrew scriptures that, that people were reading. And Anyway, we can talk about that in a different episode. Um, but needless to say, the Septuagint was the translation that was used by the early church. By the time the church had become officially recognized in the Roman Empire uh, in the 4th century CE, there was a call for a Latin translation of the text to be made. This is where St. Jerome comes in. You see, in 386 CE, St. Jerome translated the Greek Septuagint into Latin in what would become the official translation used by the Roman Catholic Church for many centuries, the Latin Vulgate. Very important point. The Latin Vulgate is a translation of the Greek Septuagint. Okay, moving on. Told you, we're covering a lot of ground. We're about to jump to 1500. Once the Renaissance of the 1500s rolled about, however, Hebrew and Greek were being rediscovered as languages in scholarly circles. This was simply a part of the culture of the Renaissance, or the rebirth, uh, which saw a lot of artistic and scientific and social change. Uh, this fervor for all things classical, however, weakened the view of the Latin Vulgate, which was a derivative work. 
if you can have the original, why bother with the second hand, right? So even worse, it was a derivative work of a derivative work, a translation of a translation. The Masoretic texts of the Jewish communities became of particular interest as comparisons between their Hebrew scriptures and the Latin Vulgate and Septuagint became more common. It was discovered that the Septuagint and, as a result, the Vulgate had a lot of, well, extra material included in them that the Jewish community did not hold to be a part of their scriptures. Uh, if you want to read these extra tittles and bits, uh, just pick up a Bible that ha includes the Apocrypha. Now you know where the Apocrypha came from. Yay! So, while it's possible, though, that at one point the Jewish community did consider the Apocrypha a part of their scriptures, what is considered canonical for the Hebrew Bible wasn't really solidified until... Well, much later than the Septuagint's translation. So, all that was still kind of in flux. Uh, so, things dropped, things added, etc. Anyway, this led to a push by scholars in the Renaissance. We're back in the Renaissance, which was picked up on by Protestant reformers to base the Christian Old Testament upon the Hebrew Masoretic texts instead of the Greek Septuagint. The Roman Catholic Church at the time doubled down, of course, on the Latin Vulgate and would continue to use the Latin Vulgate until Vatican II like 400 years later <laughs> um anyway so we now all this is happening at the same time that there's a growing push for the mass and the scriptures to be published in the common tongue or the vulgar tongue if we want to be really 1500 ish um so that all people could read the bible this was opposed by the Catholic Church because they argued that that would result in chaos and incongruity of doctrine if anyone, educated or not, could just pick up the text and interpret it. Champions of the common tongue translations argued in the spirit of the Renaissance that God gave all humans the gift of reason, and if that reason was led by the divine, it shouldn't cause too many problems. I'll, um... Oh, we got to give this one to the Catholics, guys, because look how many denominations there are now. <laughs> ah. um, anyway, this leads us around to the Reformation in general, where common, trunk, common tongue translations were popping up like flowers. You have Luther's German translation, uh, German translation, Elevitans, French translation, the Geneva Bible, um, and then eventually Tyndale's English translation. Uh, yep. The King James Version, however, happened a little bit later, during the early 1600s, um, and was actually stylized quite a bit off of Tyndale's translation. Um, but the King James Version was updated and revised a little bit, and was is called thus because it was sponsored by King James, King James the Fourth of Scotland, and King James the First of England, um, for the benefit of the Church of England. 
As such, it was indeed the authorized version, or in other words, the English translation of the Bible that was authorized for use by the unified crowns of Scotland and England. Whew! So there goes the first assumption, right? Now you know the answer to my question. Authorized by whom? Why King James the Fourth and First? Uh, authorized uh, this for you. Oh well, yeah. Anyway, I'm garbling myself up now. Uh, so King James the uh, King James had authorized this for use in the Church of England in. Uh, direct opposition to other English translations, such as the Wycliffe Bible, which had been translated based off of the Latin Vulgate. You guessed it. Um, so remember, derivative works bad. Uh, works based on the original language is good, uh, is basically the summation of the Reformation. Yep. Yeah, I think we did it. Yeah. We, we summed up an infinitely complex thing in, yep, mm -hmm. just remember, this is incredibly reductionistic and intended only for summary. <sighs> Today, of course, the Bible has been translated into over 3,000 languages. There are 450 specifically English translations of the Bible, so you can see why claiming that one of them is the authorized version might be extremely comforting. Um, to give you just an idea of scope, just in the last decade, 25 of those 450 English translations were produced. Why do we have so many translations, you might be wondering? Goodness, I am sure glad that you asked. Here's the problem. There is no one-to-one -one translation between languages. It's true. Such thinking actually is a fallacy. Um, translation is always an approximation. Sometimes there are words from the starting language that don't have a strict correlation in the target language. Idioms and poetry don't usually make sense as intended when brought over into new language. There, there are infinite issues here, friends, which leads us to the central truth of this episode and the answer to the second and third assumptions noted above. The work of translation is, at its heart, a work of interpretation. Let's start with, some non, with a non-biblical example. You know, to bypass that gut reaction that I think some of you are having. There's this delightful German word, Kummerspeck. I probably pronounced that wrong. I'm sorry, people listening that know German. Um, Kummerspeck, uh, which when brought over literally into English, translates grief bacon. Oh, grief bacon. Um, but that doesn't make much sense 
does it? it? It feels like there's context there that we don't really have as English speakers, native English speakers. The, the best approximation of meaning for the word or for grief bacon uh, is the weight you gain while eating your feelings of sorrow. So the five pounds you put on downing those pints of ice cream after that breakup, come respect, grief bacon. Um, there you go. Now you know. There's a word for it. <laughs> um, but that's an approximation, an interpretation of what grief bacon means. Now, if we had a manuscript that had the word spec in it, and we wanted to translate that into English, we could easily translate it as grief bacon and be correct and expect people just to do their homework and look up the context. Or we could include the more understandable phrase. Are you beginning to catch on why this is a little more complicated than simply writing down what it says in English? The ultimate goal of any translation is understandability, but there's always a cost to be weighed as to how understandable a translator wants to make it. How closely to the original text do we want to stick? Do we want to preserve emphasis and sentence structure? Do we want to rewrite it in a way that makes more sense, but still preserves the meaning? Now bring all of this into a conversation around a sacred text. Who boy! Talk about a contentious conversation. And that's exactly what all of these translations actually represent a conversation around what the text means in our language today. Okay, now let's look at a biblical example of translation differences. We're going to be taking uh, Isaiah chapter 7, starting with verse, uh, just, just verse 14, and I'm going to read it in six different translations. <laughs> uh, see if you can pick out why <laughs> I picked this uh, as our example. Um, New Revised Standard Bible. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. New Revised Standard Version. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Common English Bible. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. New English Translation. For this reason, the Lord himself will give you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman's about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. 
the Life Bible. All right, then, the Lord himself will choose a sign. A child shall be born to a virgin, and she shall call him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And finally, the message. So the master is going to give you a sign anyway. Watch for this. A girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. She'll bear a son and will name him Emmanuel, God with us. Well, which is it? Is it a young woman or a virgin? Is the young woman about to conceive or is she already pregnant? Is this going to happen in the future or is it happening right now? We've seen all of those choices made. in one direction or the other, in all of these examples. So, (laughs) let's stick with just the young woman or virgin bit. (laughs) That's the least complicated, I think. So, while the little literal translation for Hebrew is young woman, uh, although it can contextually mean virgin, Sometimes. Hebrew is an interesting language. It's very contextual. You can see there's a typical relationship between these words, though, right? Young woman and virgin. There's there's a logical connection there. Um, But how we render that in English changes a lot, right? Um, So the Greek Septuagint translates the Hebrew word to a Greek word that means virgin. So this is a passage that's often cited around Christmas time as a prophecy about Jesus, banking on the translation being virgin and being an anticipated act, not a present act to the text. However, depending on the English translation you have access to, this may or may not fully come across as the quoting around Christmas time intends. So some translations followed, chose to follow the historical tradition of the Vulgate and translate it virgin, while others go with young woman in order to have a quote-unquote more accurate and true to the Hebrew translation. In every instance of translation, with every single word that is even slightly ambiguous, you have a debate, and translators are required to make a decision about how to render it. Add to this the theology of particular interpreters, and there may be particular interests for one translation over another, as in the very mild example above. Translation is, first and foremost, a work of interpretation. So when you crack open an English Bible and read it, You are reading the text of the Bible, yes, but you are reading it through the filter of a particular set of translators. 
and whatever baggage they brought to the text. Not to mention your own baggage, but we'll get to that at a different time. <laughs> uh, so I think we're all kind of left maybe wondering, so what translation should we read <laughs> if we're going to read any? There's kind of a spectrum here. There's, there's three categories, really. Uh, at one end, you have formal translations. Formal translations try to stay true to the form of the text, the original text. They try to stay as true to the letter and structure of the text as possible. Good examples of this would be the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, the NRSV, and the Common English Bible, um, the CEB. Uh, another category would be uh, dynamic translations. These are translations that favor meaning over sentence structure. Good examples of these would be the King James Version, the New International Version, the New Living Translation. I actually think King James Version is almost in its own category. <laughs> it's, it's the King James Version, guys. It's the authorized version. Um, and then you have paraphrase translations that translate very much in favor of meaning with little regard to original structuring or with any regard to ensuring a word-to-word -word translation at all. The Life Bible and the Message are examples of this. That's not to say that, again, that there are any less credible translations. They just have a different agenda. Okay, so... So the question that I asked just before, so which translation should we read, is actually the wrong question. The question, the correct question is which ones should we read? Honestly, if we want to be responsible readers of the text and we don't know Hebrew and Greek, <laughs> um, I would highly recommend picking a formal translation, a dynamic translation, and a paraphrase, and read all three of them side by side. Um, they're different approaches to the text. Gives a person, especially one that doesn't know Hebrew or Greek, their best shot at getting to the meaning of the text's uh, that are being translated from. It'll also expose the assumptions, theologies, and choices of the interpreters, removing that sacred veil we often put over the text, if you will. You can see how this affects just about any conversation we have about the Bible, especially conversations uh, with people who want to read the Bible literally. Functionally, as I've tried to demonstrate uh, in this episode, that's impossible because of, again, what we've just reviewed. There's no such thing as a literal English Bible. If you want to read the Bible literally, read it in Hebrew and Greek. But you don't have to do that. Just pick up a few texts and start comparing. Not only is it super educational, but I guarantee that it'll help you understand what is being said even better.
Now, that brings us to the conclusion of today's episode. If you are enjoying The Bible Less Traveled, go ahead and like and follow the show on Facebook at The Bible Less Traveled. Um, and, uh, you know, especially if you're enjoying it, go ahead and leave a review. Yeah, on the app that you listen to the podcast on or again on the facebook page and if you hate the show but you're still listening bless your heart don't worry about the review seriously don't worry about it it's okay um yeah i'm not good at landing planes especially conversation shaped planes so i'm just gonna say until next time grace and peace my friends